And I think it's really kind of like, you know, kind of baked into the way that most of us received education and like ongoing training to believe that when we have to tend to ourselves, that if that is experienced at all by our clients, that we are going to be harming them. Like not just that it will be hard for them, but that actually that like harm will occur and that rupture will happen. If you've been in this field for even a couple of hours or so, you have almost certainly had someone try to impress upon you the importance of self-care. Not usually in the context of yourself being valued for its own sake, but care for the self of the therapist, care that enables you to show up effectively for your clients. On the face of it, there's not much to disagree with there. Yes, when we are adequately cared for, we are better equipped to show up and care for our clients. However, this truism about self-care is accompanied by a whole host of undertones and connotations, which are sometimes present only by implication and other times explicitly stated. We have been taught that our self-care, and by extension, our need for care, should be invisible to our clients. We have been taught that the extent to which our self-care is successful is in part the extent to which our clients remain unaware of it and unaware of our need for it. And this tenet, that if we are doing self-care right, it will be invisible, can contribute to this sense we often have that our human frailty, our human need, these critical elements that comprise our humanity, that all of this is a dirty little secret even a shameful secret that we must keep from our clients. This belief that exposure to our fallibility will harm our clients is so interwoven into the substrate of this field that we rarely think to ask the question, what are the harms we are doing by hiding our fallibility? What if the very secrecy that we are encouraged to bring into our relationships with our clients is limiting our potential to leverage the benefits of those relationships? What opportunities are being lost when we perform what my guests for today's episode describe as a constructed state of perpetual well-being? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Onyx Fujii and Asher Panjuris, co-directors of the Kintsugi Therapist Collective, a community of therapists dedicated to embodied and liberatory visions of care. I learned about Onyx and Asher when a friend of mine sent me a link back in March to an article they co-wrote called We Need Not Be Fine, a manifesto for mental health care workers who can't go on like this, which of course we will link to in the show notes. And as I read it, I immediately sensed kindred spirits because the ideas Onyx and Asher are wrestling with in the article around how we negotiate our clients' relationships with our humanity in the face of massive ongoing individual and collective struggle are very resonant with some of these same themes I've been trying to look at here on the show. The article goes into some of the pitfalls that come with the idealized image of ourselves we often work so hard to present to our clients, and the richness of the potential benefits that can come when we take the risk of thoughtfully transgressing this idealized image. And they both elaborate on this in such a nuanced and beautiful way in the course of our conversation together. I think you will get a lot out of listening and of examining these ideas along with us. 
as I'm fond of saying on this show, there are no easy answers here. But in the complexity, I find there is a lot more space to breathe. And I hope you will too. Welcome, Onyx and Asher. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for being on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah it's great to be here. So I'm curious about um, what made you decide to write this manifesto? What uh, what were you thinking about, uh, talking about together that made you decide to uh, put this out there into the world when you did? Well, I can... I can try to explain that. Um, I think it's been brewing for a long time. Um, we are the co-directors at the Kintsugi Therapist Collective, and um, part of our programming um, involves us working with clinicians who are uh, at the edge of burnout of some kind or at the threshold of some sort of need for change. Um, and it's been increasingly, um, disheartening, but also I think an important, um, it's important for us in this field to confront the fact that we have, um, we've had some newer clinicians who've come to, we run a weekend retreat and we've had some newer clinicians who are maybe a year or two into the field, come and say if you know if something doesn't change i'm i'm actually going to leave the field you know and and pretty much everyone who comes to us has that experience but it it really i think hit us um when we had such a like strong feeling together of you know not only is it us we started the Kintsugi Therapist Collective basically because we were about to leave the field um each individually so I think in some ways, hearing that echoed back to us really was a kind of call to action for us to um, put into words some of what we're learning through the process of collaboration with this um, collective. Yeah. And I was actually just going to add, I mean, I think that that weekend actually was a huge catalyst and it was sort of interesting timing because in the same month we sort of welcomed this group of sort of majority younger to the field folks for this weekend intensive at the same time that we were concluding our first year long program, which is the embodied private practice part of our work, which are these kind of year long cohorts of folks who really range in how long they've been in the field from like very new to, you know, 25 plus years. And I thought it was really like valuable to see, yeah, like as Asher was describing this, like in immense burnout coming in and then as folks were completing program and you know we did a lot of conversing and processing around like the experience of being together um and it did feel really powerful and validating of this vision that we had this sort of idea that asher and i had had like what would it be like to be together in this way just in terms of i think especially in this time of like so much intense collective loss like how important kind of like breaking the silence and like really being together in community was for folks and like the ways, I mean, we certainly didn't like solve the problem, but I think in challenging it and kind of being like radically willing to be vulnerable together that there has really been movement like for folks we work with and for us as, as practitioners and as directors and people. Yeah, I, I'm seeing so many newer clinicians already at this place of like, 
okay, I'm finishing grad school or I've finished, I'm close to licensure and I'm already at this point of wanting to maybe leave the field does seem, I agree, like pretty remarkable in terms of just where we are at with that right now. And certainly I hear more and more um, therapists just talking about that possibility than I uh, I ever have before um, over, I mean, I think even more probably in what I've been hearing even more over this last year than, you know, earlier on in the pandemic. Um, I'm curious for the two of you of having, um, Asher, you alluded to like this having also been your own experience of like, we have to do something different or we're getting out of this work. Like what, what for you um, personally in your own work and your own, you know, way of being um, in this, in this field, what do you think the contributing factors have been to that sense of like something has to change or, or I can't stay? Yeah. Um, we could probably talk for several hours about this. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I think, you know, for me, I, uh, started work in this field very, um, immersed in, in sort of complex trauma, trauma as it, it sort of plays out in the body, essentially working with people who struggle with disordered eating, queer, trans, non-binary folks, um, that is really slow, intense work. Um, and it's what I wanted to be doing. Um, yet, after many years um, of holding space in a particular way, so I'm, you know, kind of have a relational psychodynamic training um, it's a lot of attachment-based work that I do. How I was trained and to do that work and how I intuitively felt, you know, like this is how I want to approach people who, um, clients and groups of folks who are, who are working with this material, I think was totally, almost totally devoid of any connection with my body whatsoever. Um, and so... I and I I live with several chronic illnesses that were you know one of which was diagnosed I I have Crohn's disease and I was diagnosed when I was fourteen and so I have lived most of my life with with chronic illness and I think the expectation that I put on myself based on you know kind of internalized ableism um, is one thing right to perform professionalism in a certain way but. And that is a systemic problem. But I think more potently, I guess, is the the sort of expectation in this field or how people are coming, clients are coming to this work with the expectation of some form of quote unquote healing or wellness that has been increasingly kind of sold to them in in small doses as if like there is such a thing as you know trauma resolution or um things like that and so i think you know i'm not blaming the clients right i do think though that my level of burnout is connected to um how i was approaching working with people who required a lot of um use of me, like using me clinically in a, an appropriate way in terms of attachment repair, but I was not 
nourishing or taking care of myself. And I don't mean like bubble baths and yoga and meditation. I was actually, have been doing those things, but I, in session, I was, you know, bracing against pain or chronic pain, or I was going to sessions when I shouldn't have been and when I wasn't emotionally or physically available. You know, I was, I was playing a role, you know, and I hit burnout on several occasions, um, changed my practice uh, many times, actually, like several times. Um, so it wasn't just a matter of, okay, I'm going to start a, start private practice. It was, I started private practice and then felt more burnout, you know, so it was really a, a kind of ongoing process. And when Onyx and I reconnected, we went to grad, graduate school together. And when we reconnected during the pandemic, we were both in very difficult places in terms of our our health and subsequently in terms of our work. Um, it just didn't feel tenable um, at all to be working the way we were. And I think we were experiencing a lot of grief around that. And that was keeping us in the work in a certain way, you know, um, despite the fact that it, it was um, too challenging, too much for us. I don't know if Onyx, you have anything to add to that because I, our experiences aren't entirely the same, but. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, as I was listening to you talk, I was also like thinking about how many times I've tried to share parts of my version of that story and the response being like, well, why did you do that kind of idea? Like as though it's like some simple fix, but then the reality is, and you know, um, actually like one of our KTC groups this week was talking a lot about idealization as like, there is so much, pressure in our field and i think it has to do with being like quote sort of like a healing profession or a caregiving profession like so much pressure to show up with this sort of um, impenetrable beyond reproach constant presence and i think it's really kind of like you know kind of baked into the way that most of us received education and like ongoing training to believe that when we have to tend to ourselves that if that is experienced at all by our clients that we are going to be harming them like not just that it will be hard for them but that actually that like harm will occur and that rupture will happen and I you know it really felt dramatized to me in a lot of ways and I think for myself like kind of like reflecting on those messages like those messages really took hold because you know like as a queer non-binary person of color with chronic illness living in this country like I've been told pretty much since birth that I'm not going to measure up to what is expected of me so hearing that messaging in a field that is sort of supposed to be about like healing and connection and relationship is really scary you know and I think like sort of like the pressure to perform in the ways that you were describing Asher like really kind of like resonates for me that feeling of like I have to just keep going there's like an urgency and a fear that drives it and it's so incredibly unhealthy. But, you know, in a way I think um, like hearing you say the things you just said when we met back in, I guess, what was that 2021 to kind of start reconnecting and working towards what is now KTC. I was realizing that for so much of my career, Asher was actually the only person to my knowledge who shared the intersections of being like a queer and unbinary, chronically ill parent and therapist. And I say to my knowledge because there are plenty of others, but like sort of the silence 
around the part that had to do with illness felt so loud, whereas the other parts felt much more accessible. And I do think that, you know, maybe the manifesto and a lot of what we've kind of um, centered in KTC in terms of really disability justice forward and focused is because that to me, it feels like a really core part of the problem that isn't being talked about and, or certainly not talked about enough. Yeah, uh, what you're both saying, you know, is is making me recall just uh, being in grad school. Um, you know, I was in grad school 10-ish years ago and remembering um, it's like some of the books we had to read about like intro to being a therapist, whatever. I remember specifically um specifically this uh this passage about like the type of person a therapist had to be and one of the things that it said was like therapists need to have a lot of energy and i was like and i've i've had chronic fatigue issues with chronic fatigue since i was in my entire adult life and it felt so to encounter that as like one of the first uh the first things that i read um in grad school was so you know it made me immediately question that sense like is that is there really should i be here is there a place for me here as like a person who doesn't like have a lot of energy and there being a couple other people in my cohort who had um you know really significant health challenges that you know i really can see um especially in retrospect outside of the pressure cooker of grad school like how much how intense the implicit expectation to like perform being good enough be like being good enough to get through the gates and being gate kept you know allowed through um to the next stage uh to be as close to you know whatever is considered healthy enough good enough acceptable to even get into this work in the first place it's so pervasive from the get-go how did you, so you came together to form your collective. What else, what did you, when you were um, making the changes that you're talking about, getting to these, these, you know, points of um, whatever I'm doing up to now is not enough to make this sustainable for me to, to like move me out of this burnout place into being like in an okay place with my work. What were the changes that you started uh, making? It's a good question. And I almost feel like there's like two different parts of my mind that are being like activated by that question. Uh, activated, not in a bad way, just in a curious way of like, there's the part that's around like, like uh, literal logistical um, structural changes. Like for example, recognizing that like as somebody who's like multi-systemically chronically ill and has a lot of chronic pain and fatigue, like I actually like need to take a nap most days. So I actually have to schedule not just an hour or 30 minutes lunch break, but like a two to three hour lunch break. And that that's like necessary for me. That's not like a luxury, which is I think how that's often branded to like work less. It's actually very stressful, um, you know, to be doing that, but that that's actually like necessary for my well-being. Um, or things like having a heating pad in the chair that I sit in. I actually, as it so turns out, have a heating pad for my clients on the couch because most of my clients are chronically ill and disabled too. And I think that that was actually like a very sweet moment when I chose to do that of just kind of recognizing this sort of like connectedness that felt very um, supportive and I think and, and like really um, helped break down some of the stigma of like it's okay to like physically be in pain in here and like we can both experience that and also do this work well so I think there's like that part and then I think the other part 
which I think is almost like hard to totally put words to, but was just sort of recognizing that I can no longer fracture myself into a million little pieces and just pick out the ones that work for other people and show up with those. Like that's why we use the sort of like metaphor imagery of kintsugi, which is like a Japanese form of um, pottery, uh, like restoration, but with a lot of emphasis on like kind of elevating and illuminating the cracks rather than trying to disguise them. And, um, you know, I think for me, like, I mean, I'm Japanese, but also kind of like thinking about my life with illness amongst other experiences of, you know, trauma and oppression, like that image really stands out to me as like, there is a point when I think I have to just radically be okay with me, even if no one else is. And if it fails, if my business closes, if, you know, all the catastrophic things I feared would happen. Okay. Like that's, you know, I, I, I guess I will survive that because I've had to be resilient a lot of times and, you know, maybe not surprisingly, but like, that's not what happened. Um, but, you know, to this day, of course, there's a lot of fear about that. Like when is the other shoe going to drop, so to speak, you know, when will I really be proven to be not be enough? But I think at this point, it doesn't really feel like even a choice. Like, I think, yeah, just like the moment we've arrived in, mm-hmm. there's like no turning back. Mm-hmm. In terms of survive, like I, when you said I will survive that, I'll have to, I think there's a relational component to that in our work as well. There, you know, the fear going back to our graduate training, right? There's a, f- there's sort of this fear that we have that if we fail our clients or if we fail to fit the mold of what a good enough therapist is, right, Um, which can be a very, very narrow and ableist kind of and all sorts of things um, notion. I think one thing that I've changed in my practice is that I have had to, but I have allowed myself to fail certain clients. And by that, I just mean um, showing some of my imperfection and allowing that to be a risk that, you know, is met with acceptance and, you know, everyone is fine with it. And there are some clients who are not. Um, And I, you know, I know that. And I think I lived in fear for a long time of sort of the attachment trauma that it was was possible if if I um, didn't perform a kind of, you know, reparative function. And, and that is in and of itself a really, there's a lot of ableism in, embedded in that reparative function. You know, like the reparative attachment figure is, doesn't talk about not feeling well or doesn't, you know, it, And yet, I think Onyx and I have both experienced that even if someone says, you know, I need, I actually need a a clinician who is available for me twice a week, you know, without fail, and that you're not, you know, this is no longer a good fit, even being able to articulate that and not feeling abandoned or dropped, but rather, you know, invited in to talk about that. I never knew that was possible, to be totally honest. You know, I mean, I just didn't know that those dynamics were possible and that they wouldn't destroy my clients. Um, and they honestly don't destroy the relationship either if you are approaching it um, 
with honesty and and openness. Um, but I did disappoint people. So you have to live with that too, I think. And that's one of the, cha- I think that's one of the changes I've been making over time. You know, to me, it, it, what you're speaking of, like, there's something about like the resiliency and the flexibility in some of those relationships that is perhaps more um, than we are taught to believe it can be with a client relationship. Um, and I find that to be, uh, and that's something you have to take risks like the ones that you're talking about. You have to actually take risks to find that out. You know, we have to take risks and the clients have to take risks to be able to um, to find that flexibility, you know, and, and what you were just saying, Asher, made me think about, like, for me, I've been just much more, um, you know, so I had my daughter in, in the fall of 2020. So for me, like the pandemic and becoming a parent are like totally fused in my um, in my sense of like that experience. Um, and it's so much shifted. I'm, you know, all of that happening simultaneously, my awareness of my own boundaries and capacities within this work. And I think some of it is, is, you know, a lowered capacity because of the energy I'm putting into, you know, parenting, but also some of it is getting real about what my limitations actually are. And I've come to, as I've kind of divested from that that mold of the good therapist, or I, you know, tend to refer to it as like the good therapist archetype, that idea of like, you know, you write back to emails within 24 hours and you, you know, whatever, you're all the things, you're performing this level of, you know, um, very close to perfection, uh, you know, all of the time. Um, you know, I've been really aware of like the areas where I just can't do that. And I, I, I become much more transparent and straightforward about that with my clients. Like I, you know, admin, I'm just slow with admin. So if somebody asks me for an extra admin thing, they're probably going to have to ask me a couple of times. And I'm just like, I may forget about this. So please be proactive about texting me and asking me for that letter you need if I haven't sent it to you by, you know, next Monday or whatever. Um, And people are usually, they're usually fine with that. They're usually okay with the fact that I can't have this perfect capacity where I hold everything in my mind all the time, whatever it is. And yet that still feels so transgressive somehow um, to not just hold myself to that standard. And it's it feels like in so many ways, it's a little thing, but it's still violating this perception of what we're supposed to be all the time in this role. Well, I was thinking it's also it's I mean, that's very relatable what you're describing. I yeah, especially with those like extra admin tasks, especially the way my brain functions, especially these days. But, you know, is that it's ironic that there's that feeling because it actually is counter to what we know, which is that if we're talking about like primary attachment figures as like parents or early childhood caregivers, that we know actually that it's not so much the like sort of like the wound or the mistake or the thing that happens, but it's the failure to acknowledge it and be accountable to it that causes the deep wound and the deep like ongoing harm. And so I think like sort of hearing you describe that whole sequencing, it's like, yeah, but the part where you say to someone, like, I'm going to be honest and transparent about what's happening. So you don't have to live in this kind of fear state of like, if I'm not going to show up for you, or if I don't care about you, or I don't think you matter to me that like, none of that is true. And, you know, it's like, even though I think maybe each of us has been sort of like forced to confront this due to circumstance, like I actually very much believe that were that not to have been the case, I would hope that somebody would have encouraged it anyways, because 
I actually think there's like so much um, depth and possibility to like this practice of sort of reparative relationship that we're doing all the time when everyone in the room gets to be a whole person, you know, which doesn't mean we're in an equilateral relationship. But I think there is something really powerful about that connection and interplay that is just not possible with the sort of archetypal blank slate therapist. Right. No, I think absolutely like there is something that's more that seems so much more generative about showing up that way, whether you are pushed into it by circumstance or not. One thing I've been curious about. So, um, you know, after reading uh, your essay, I think people often come to come to therapy and therapists with the sense of it being uh, aspirational in a sense. Um you know, I, I happened to be on, I was like in the depths of Reddit somewhere uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I saw um, some people having like a conversation about like therapist influencers and a therapist influencer, an Instagram um, influencer um, who is very open about her like struggles with her eating disorder. And it's, you know, it's the internet. So it's, you know, people are snarking, whatever. But I, I found it to be, there was something um watching this conversation that felt really like it said a lot about what people expect about therapy because it was um it was these people talking about like oh god it's so disturbing right to find out that therapists have these issues and and like you'd never believe it but there's so many therapists with all these various problems and mental health problems and isn't that you know unsettling and concerning essentially and i'm just like i you know i'm laughing at this because like I just I come from a family of therapists and I know a ton of therapists in my personal life. And I'm like, we are not some shining beacon of well-adjusted, you know, like we've come to the promised land of mental health and stayed there, you know, which which I think, you know, uh, you to alluded to in that sense of like this performance of this state of well-being. One of my first reactions is just like how it's so frustrating to be held to that standard but also underneath it I see so much to me there's so much fear that people have of like if even therapists can't do it and they have all the tools or they have all the knowledge then what does that mean about if I go to therapy and somebody's helping me then where are they helping me to go or what uh if they can't do it you know it being arrive at the promised land of of perpetual well-being if they can't do it then um then I maybe I can't do it and and then what? And so um, I'm curious just about, uh, you know, in terms of thinking about people who have that, um, that view, uh, what in your minds and how you see it, what's the alternative? What is it that we're doing and, and helping people do if it's not arrive um, in this, this place of, of well-being that they get to then stay in? You know, the first thought that comes to mind, and Asher, feel free to jump in, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, it's interesting, because we really don't expect the same things from a lot of other types of practitioners. Like, I don't expect my PCP to never have the flu or a cold, you know, I don't expect my gynecologist to not need gynecological health care, right? If my, you know, if a body worker I'm working with has to call out because they've thrown out their back, I don't see them as having failed, I see them as being human. And so it makes me wonder, like, I haven't really put this thought together until this very moment. So we'll see how it goes. But that I do think the stigma around mental health and mental illness is a major factor in all of this, that sort of this idea that we can't touch this, 
topic um, and the like enormous amount of shame that exists around it, I think is a significant part of it. Like this idea of like, we really isolate and ostracize people who live with mental illness in our society. And so therefore the idea that your therapist could be mentally ill is like agreeing to receive treatment from somebody who is deemed by society as being bad, unworthy, scary. You know, when I honestly think in the inverse, I wouldn't, you know, when we were in graduate school and someone would disclose that they were there and had never been to therapy, I was like shocked. I was like, what on earth? Like, what are you doing here for? What kind of like fucked up altruistic, you know, savior complex brought you here? And like, please, I hope you never treat anyone I care about or anyone generally because yeah, like, I don't know. I, I just find that so backwards. Yeah. I mean, I think something we I th- wrote about is, and Onyx really has helped me to kind of put this together, but it's similarly chronic illness is something that most people or illness is something actually that all people will have to deal with. But, you know, chronically, chronic illness conditions are things that at some point in one's life that you're going to have to deal with. And we could maybe argue that mental illness is something that many people will have to deal with. I think that, you know, the pandemic illuminated that that fact pretty clearly. But just the idea that a therapist would, or a, a human who is chronically ill would somehow induce just being open about that would somehow induce a kind of panic in a client is I think accurate. I think sometimes in the space of quote unquote healing, a client doesn't want to kind of be reminded of that, (laughs) that kind of vulnerability, right? For one reason or another. And the stigma around all of it is, I think, as Onyx said, it's really a systemic issue. And who are the mental health practitioners who are trying to conceal their, you know, struggle with anxiety or whatever? How, in what way are they, how are they thinking, I guess I should say, how are they thinking about their patients who struggle with anxiety? right it's like how how does that work i'm not sure and i and yet i've been i absolutely have done it and i think the interesting thing when i was listening to you ask the question i thought you were going to say um which is maybe the same side of two sides of the same coin but i thought you were going to say you know what do you think about therapist influencers who are talking so openly about their struggles and their daily life. Um, and I don't actually know what I think about that so much, but I, I do think that this discourse amongst therapists gets really, um, it's gets boring really fast because you're either a blank slate or you're disclosing too much just by uttering the words like, I was sick, you know, or I have an illness, you know, that is this massive disclosure. And I think all of us who are talking here have felt that in our nervous systems based on how we are, you know, professionalized. It's it's almost like 
anything is a is a wild disclosure um and i think that's it's not very generative either side of that extreme you know i don't think onyx and i are arguing or nor are we like coaching the people in our programs to to sort of tell clients everything about what they eat for breakfast and how they you know like their bowel movements and their you know it's it's like we're just talking about i mean you could talk about those things but i think we're we have to give clinicians credit for what they how they have been trained um kind of the better parts of the training and that we have a capacity to to read people and to know where you know know what might be useful and even if we're not disclosing quote unquote even if we're not speaking aloud what we are feeling especially if we deem that to be you know kind of too much for a client we still can feel those things within ourselves and be honest about them as we enter into a session i mean I enter into a session after feeling more rested and acknowledging the reality that I need rest more than I ever imagined. I enter that session with more of myself for that patient. You know, I'm I'm more available to the patient. So I don't need to tell the patient necessarily like I had to take a nap today and yesterday and, you know, to kind of convey that I prioritize that, you know, that I prioritize caring for myself and nourishing myself, um, even when it's inconvenient. Um, I love I love what you said about it getting boring fast, because I think that's so I actually think that's true of like most of the public discourse about therapy and being a therapist in general is that it's really boring because it's very low risk because the fear of being seen as screwing up um, is so I just I can just feel it. I just feel it when I'm with groups of other therapists, when I you know, when I, I it's just like it's palpable, the fear of being seen making a mistake or doing something that other therapists think is a mistake. Um, it, it really narrows uh, what we're willing to talk about, I think, a lot of the time um, and certainly about um, self-disclosure is so such a stressful topic for so many people. I think it's very people are very unwilling to say to want to be seen as having made a mistake by self-disclosing too much. I know I have made mistakes around self-disclosure where I've disclosed something that was not useful in that moment for the client and not really that helpful. Um, and I think it's feels safer for people to err on the other side, you know, because you rarely get few people get dinged around um, not disclosing enough or not being, you know, present enough, letting a client see as much enough of their humanity. And that's what I that's one of the things I liked about about your piece is that uh, is the way you talked about how, um, you know, the potential um, damage that we can do when we don't show up as fully. And I'm just curious, I guess, also then for you to maybe speak more to that of like what um, when we when we are concealing more, um, when we are uh, even by omission um, and uh, performing that 
um, artificial state of well-being. Um, what do you think some of the the harms are um, in, in so far as how that shows up in the therapeutic relationship? I guess sort of like the first thing that comes to my mind is, and maybe also sort of speaks to like this idea, like when you said like, you know, clients really ding us for not disclosing enough. And I think that that's true, but I don't think it's because they are not aware of it. I think it is because there is a feeling that they are not allowed to need humanness from us because it is so common, I think, and especially thinking about my clients who are, let's say like 40 plus, like 40 to upwards of 70, you know, describing for me, like you are the literal first practitioner I've had in my entire life who has made me feel like I am a human and so are you. And not that like I am in a fishbowl and you were like poking and prodding at me and trying to figure out quote what's wrong with me so you can quote fix it. And so I think, you know, to me, there's like a lot in that. It's sort of like the, like there's a lot that happens in the unsaid. Um, and, and similarly, it's sort of like in a different way, but I think another part that I experienced a lot in the unsaid is when kind of like to Asher's point of like when we come in with awareness about things, like where that awareness lives and how protective or not we feel we need to be of it, I find really affects my clinical work. Like, I mean, the, the example I have most readily is uh, like one of the illnesses I live with is that I have type one diabetes. And I remember, you know, several years ago at this point when the continuous glucose monitor, which is a device that like 24 seven, like in real time monitors my blood glucose. And, you know, it, it's, it's like embedded into my skin. It goes to an app on my phone. It's reactive and responsive and it makes noise and is visible. When that device first came out, I elected to do my best to fight insurance to get one because it was so critical to my health and well-being. But literally every session for probably three months, I sat in my chair and like every third thought I had was like, please don't go off. Please don't go off. Please don't make noise. I wore long sleeve all the time, which I had not previously been doing. It just felt so overwhelming to think about. And it was sort of that feeling of like, when am I going to fuck this up? When am I going to fuck this up? When is my body going to fuck up? Which is going to meet, you know, it's like that trail of like, you know, just like fear and despair. And then like, of course, I'm not being attuned in that moment, you know, to what's happening for my client. Whereas if it goes off and my client has a hard reaction to it, like, okay, like here we are, we can attend to that dynamic. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm still going to be diabetic. I'm still going to wear the device. It might still be upsetting to them, but I think just like sort of like the willingness to hold attunement, like that's the important part. And even if that takes a long time, and like I had a couple of clients for whom it was activating because of like medical trauma they've been through, you know, but I think in a way like that is the work. It, it kind of goes back to your question about what are people um, coming to therapy for? <laughs> and if it is for a, a certain kind of healing um, or fixing, as you, I think, described it, um, like fixing a broken self, if all we project back is our own kind of perfected self, then I think we're going to stay in a loop of a client never really feeling as if they, by comparison, could live up to the fantasy they have in our head, in their heads about who therapists are, which is why it's so dismaying to, you know, encounter a therapist influencer who is talking about something more publicly. And I'm really, I really did engage in that, you know, and I, I probably still do in some ways, but I really engaged in this. Um, and I think a lot of therapists who come to the field as sort of a 
trauma response or as parentified children, you know, we want our goodness to be affirmed. Um, And if we are disappointing objects, if we are, you know, triggering our clients, and I certainly do not argue that we should be, you know, actively trying to do that, but just that, you know, what Onyx is talking about, that that this sound could potentially be difficult, it's so much easier to say to someone who you trust and know cares about you, I'm scared. That sound scares me, you know, and that is different than it's just a different way of approaching things. And so I don't actually know what people should come to therapy expecting, but I do know the ways that I have contributed, especially when there's a lot of shame about illness, my own illness, and the ways my body is not cooperating. I I do think I got a lot out of being seen as a kind of savior figure or a trauma healing guru, you know, um, and I, I really want to unravel and unlearn that. I think that what, what you're articulating to me raises that question of like, is this, is this image that we're taught to project, um, of, you know, well-being and wholeness and whatever, uh, to the, uh, exclusion of our own humanity. Um, We're sold that that's for the client. Um, And what you're articulating, Asher, like really makes me think about like, is that really for the client or is that so we can get that supply, right? Of like that it feels good to be idealized. It feels good to be seen as um, someone who can um, provide something to the client that they can't get from anyone else to be special in that way. And I think, you know, I think the vast, vast majority of therapists were, you know, parentified children, however you want to characterize it in that way. Um, And so are very susceptible to that, um, just how seductive that feeling is of like, if somebody needs me, sees me in this way, uh, I'm, I'm valid, I'm worthy, um, et cetera. And how much authenticity and generativity we're leaving out of the therapy experience if we if we just stay there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I was thinking when, yeah, you know, because I mean, like Asher said, I too will wholly confess that I have and do continue to struggle with this topic. Like we hardly have it figured out. And when I think about the feeling, like the kind of bodily feeling that comes up for me when I have to cancel or reschedule or ask for a phone session with a client, the feeling that comes up up the most for me is they're not going to be able to feel that I care. And I think underneath that feeling, because of this, yes, the like parentified child pieces. And if I'm not seen as being caring or caring enough, then I'm in danger in a really core way. Um, You know, and the truth of the matter is, is that's hardly the case. Like sometimes when I and really feeling the care for a client the most, they might not even be with me. They might just, you know, it might just be like a moment where, you know, I'm feeling, you know, some type of way, but I think being able to articulate, okay, if that's the feeling that's driving me working from a place that's not actually, in my opinion, ethical, like that's my work to do. Like that's why I'm in therapy and will continue to be indefinitely, you know, to do that 
work, you know, of my own wounds, because of course there's like no way of like locking those out just when we're in the sort of like professional role. I was actually listening to one of your other podcasts kind of preparing for this and something you said that really like stood out to me was professionalism is dishonesty. And that like really resonated with me. I think like toxic professionalism is one of like the big kind of topics of conversation throughout KTC because yeah, if being a professional means you have to show up that way, I don't know, that just doesn't feel ethical to me. It doesn't feel in solidarity or care for other people. Yeah, I mean, I think Asher said a little while ago, it kind of really like mirrors back to our clients that like they will never be good enough in this like false idea that we can be. And, you know, there's like something really disturbing to me about that as being such like a common dynamic in our field. Yeah, I think especially to me, uh, you know, since the pandemic and and I think right now we're in a a weird phase of I think there's like a lot of aggressive collective forgetting right now in the pandemic collective trauma process that is weird and difficult to navigate. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about like early on in the when we were in the moment where everybody was acknowledging that they were struggling um, in a very real way in those first months of just, uh, you know, uncertainty and chaos, you know, like how, how like fucked up is it to me if I were to present that I'm like doing fine and then everybody else, every client like is facing so much difficulty and challenge and fear. Um, and then I'm sort of over here. They know that we're all in the same society. Like we're all, you know, like we're all on planet earth, like dealing with this together. They know I'm a human being, but then I'm presenting that I'm doing fine with all this. How like fucked up is that to present that as something that is even possible? Like that seems, that doesn't feel right to me. It really, you know, very clearly to me sets up the false expectations that you're talking about that like you should be one should be able to do fine under immense you know incredible difficulty and pressure that is beyond anyone's capacity to do fine in it's similar to i mean this is such a cliche to say this but it's we're all parents and you know as a parent i if there is like a fire happening in the room if I told my kid it wasn't happening and everything was okay, I don't think she would trust me. And she certainly wouldn't feel safe. Um, and I guess that's that feels like it's part of it that I think we sort of forget about the power of mentalization, right? Like the idea that your a session might not go exactly how both of you planned it, but afterwards you're thinking about that client and then the next week you come back and say I've been thinking about you like how that re I've had my therapist say that to me and I thought I was gonna melt it's, you know it was like so powerful really yes. you think about me <laughs> um yes. so I do think some of this tracks with this kind of idea uh, around modeling mentalization and really modeling that that is mutually beneficial and powerful um, in its own right um, outside of sort of the like the action of the therapy session. 
Yeah, I was actually, you took the word that I was just thinking of, which is like modeling and um, a sort of story I've told several times in QTC that really highlighted the kind of unintended harm that I had been doing was um, several years ago, I had a client who was having a very significant, very terrifying to them and just terrifying for anyone medical situation was going to be happening a procedure later on in the week. And uh, our last session before their appointment, I could not see them. It was just not possible. I, yeah, it was like an enormous series of cascading things and I just had to cancel and I felt horrified. And in my head, I was like, I have destroyed them. I have destroyed our relationship. I'm a terrible therapist. Like, you know, on and on, I'm sure you can imagine all of the shame spiral that I was in. And then, you know, they had their procedure. They had to take a week off after, like I had even offered, oh, like if I, you know, if there's anything I can do to, you know, I tried to like pad the lining in all of these ways, which I think actually was not useful um, and was sort of not excellent boundaries on my part. But then I, you know, when they came back in the next session, I was just like preparing for it because this is somebody who's had so much attachment rupture and particularly around their health in their life that I was like, here it comes. They're going to be enraged at me. And in my mind, in my like shame spiral, I was like, and they deserve to, they should probably fire me. And the first words out of their mouth were, they said to me, I am so glad that you canceled. And, and I had, I was like, what? Like, is this like the twilight zone? And they said to me, because they said, I have so much shame about how much in my life I can't show up for but it felt to me like if you, Onyx, my therapist, can cancel, then maybe I can cancel too. And it was like so powerful. I mean, it really like brought me to tears just about because it felt like I had missed the most important part. Like I was so busy trying to be this like symbiotic attachment and like this like constantly like showing up in all these ways and going above and beyond that I kind of just forgot that like actually the part that they needed the most from me was just to see a person they had sought me out because I like them have some you know significant health struggles you know live in a like in a like different than the mainstream image of what like a body should be like or what a person should be like and I think for them like that that was actually the important part and I like missed it because I was like trying to like do all of these like therapeutic acrobatic tricks to like be perfect um and I think like, that was actually like a moment of like a real like turn for me in terms of like some of the unlearning work that I and we have been engaging in in the last years. That reminds me of, um, you know, some of what Irvin Yalom has written about just how uh, the moments often that we think as therapists that we're like at our best and really like performing, like doing an amazing intervention or whatever are so often not the moments that are most meaningful to the client and that there's those experiences of like humanness and human meeting that seem I mean like Asher you were saying like that sense of like saying oh I was thinking about you that isn't always that a, a therapist isn't always thinking about what a powerful intervention that is and yet for clients that can be something that they literally remember years later and there's so much about if we the more we can allow our humanity in in an intentional way, the more opportunity there is for clients to have those kinds of moments, I think, like you're describing Onyx. I'm, so I'm curious before we, we wrap up here. So, um, you know, I have this idea of the, a therapist can't say that moment, um, which is a moment where you say something, um, whether that's to a client, colleague, you know, supervisor, whoever, general, human being um and you you know by their reaction you get that that 
that reaction from somebody where you know that's something that a therapist isn't supposed to say. Um, so if you, uh, either or both of you have a moment like that that you'd like to share. I feel like Asher and I actually like talked about, this was like the only question we sort of like talked about very briefly <laughs> a little bit in advance. And um, I kind of shared something and I think we sort of like riffed off each other. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll share my piece on Asher, like please um, share yours or jump in, which is that I said, it, and I don't know if this is going to be kind of like an annoying answer because it's not so much a moment, but what I, the first response I had, it was very like a bodily response. It was like the feeling when you said this thing, you know, you, in this question about that, you know, you did the kind of like the wrong thing, what you weren't supposed to do is that in a way, I think I experience that every time I show up in a large general therapeutic space and it's not anything that's said, it's what's unsaid. It's, you know, like I don't look like the archetypal therapist in nearly any way. And, you know, while I've found ways to protect myself from that in certain ways of kind of having more insular professional community that when I really step out into these bigger, you know, I have to go take a CE or I'm going to present somewhere that like I really witnessed that like our field is like deeply racist, like cis and heterosexist, ableist and walking through those spaces, it almost feels like my very presence is the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that that will ever change because that is like the world at large, but I think I find it just like so alarming and kind of devastating to experience that in a community of like, quote unquote, care providers. Yeah, I really appreciate you giving voice to that. It's like more of like a, a therapist can't be that. Um, and that's it's it's something that you're giving voice to, like not everybody. There's people who themselves are experienced as transgressive by their very presence, um, which speaks a lot about the enduring perceptions of who a therapist is supposed to be and who's welcome in the room and who isn't. Asher, do you have one? Yeah. I <laughs> well, I guess two things. I think even if there's, you know, a bunch of queer therapists intermingled with, you know, others, I do still experience this idea that we have all internalized that a kind of voice of authority does belong to a certain type of person. And and by all of us, I mean just us as clinicians. Um, and that I, I know that I have that somewhere in me. Like, oh, of course the, you know, like queer, chronically ill therapists are going to write a manifesto, you know, like... <laughs> Um, and, and isn't that interesting, but it's, you know, it doesn't come close to being authoritative or important. Um, so I just, I guess I wanted to just sprinkle that in there. Um, I do have one example, um, I'm sure I could think of more, but to your question about seeing the reaction, I do think that when I was going through, I basically went through, um, I had a surgery, um, and took, you know, planned time off. And that was very difficult for my clients, but we worked through it, blah, blah, blah. And I came back from the surgery and within about a week I was in a like wild autoimmune flare. So it was unexpected and it felt like a rupture, I think, for a lot of people because they were, you know, they said, you were supposed to be back and you're supposed to be better. And 
I found myself saying to several of them as they were really trying to work through this, I just, you know, I said something along the lines of, you know, I am not only failing you now, and that's real in some ways, but I'm going to, I am going to fail you again in the future. And they're just this kind of like momentary shock. And I meant it in a really, I think because it was really happening in the moment, it wasn't sort of theoretical, like, you know, I'm not going to be the perfect therapist and I'm going to, you know, let you down. It was like, I am currently letting you down. I am scaring you. It's real. And I'm going to do it again. And, but also we can survive this or we can talk about it. And, um, but I think that fear that, and the sort of dismay, like, what are you, are you serious? You know, like, and probably the disconnect was so powerful for them because I'd been performing a role, right? I'd been performing like, this is not real. I am not sick. It won't bother you. Don't worry. Um, so that I'm sure that contributed to it as well. Yeah, I like just the difference between what you're saying about like in the moment where it's like, yeah, this experience that you're having now, you're going to have it again is so much more powerful and intense than like saying to a client like, oh, I will make mistakes or I will let you down at some point <laughs> yeah, in totally. the future. And they're still maybe holding <laughs> the hope that like, OK, maybe you will and it won't be that bad or maybe you won't. Um, but in the moment saying like, this is really something we have to contend with um, and we'll have to contend with again. Should our relationship continue? Yeah, that, uh, yeah, I can see absolutely how both powerful and transgressive um, that could be, um, especially in the context where you're taking off some of the masks that you may have been wearing up to that, that point. Yeah. Thank you both so much for being here. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, thank you for inviting us. And um, certainly for me, it's helped me think through some uh, some interesting ideas that haven't haven't really touched on before. So I appreciate the opportunity. Ditto. It's been great to be here. And yeah, I really appreciate like the depth of your questions. I think it's always, it's sort of actually, I think as therapists, right, we often like are really cloistered. So, you know, as KTC is trying to break free from that, I think having opportunities like this to connect with folks have like shared and diverse like kind of ideology is so valuable so thank you so much for inviting us to talk you can find onyx Puchii and asher pancheris at kintsugi therapist collective.com if you're enjoying a therapist can't say that please rate review and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts and please don't forget to share the show with your therapist friend who could use a little more breathing room for their humanity in this work you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I always welcome your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course, you're a therapist can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time. <laughs>